This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Hohokam, and Yucateco Maya people, and we wish to pay our respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Konnichiwa, what's up, cousins? Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, aka The Blasian Blurred, and this is episode 216. Now y'all know the last couple weeks have been crazy hectic for me in preparing for and acknowledging and in allowing myself to celebrate the fifth anniversary of Militantly Mixed. It, it was a very big deal for me to have accomplished a milestone such as this, given my history of not really following through on projects I'm personally passionate about. And I didn't realize how much of a toll that was going to take. You know, you think a celebration is a celebration. It's a happy thing. It's a good thing. But it's oddly exhausting to allow yourself to acknowledge an accomplishment. And I don't think we talk about stuff like this enough. Some of this I might equate to uh, Asian American upbringing in terms of some of the stereotypes about Asian Americans. But some of the, I think it's also deeper than that. It's that, you know, I'm, I was raised to not take up space and yet I'm making a whole career out of taking up space. Uh, I was raised to be the person in the family to cater to the people in the hierarchy above me and to make my requirements or my needs smaller than theirs. And I have separated from my family and I am trying to, not always successfully, but trying to allow my needs and my feelings to be more important in my life than not. So I've been undoing a lot of stuff over the last many years to even put myself into position to create a show like Militantly Mixed and become a professionally mixed podcaster, I guess, to share really openly the the issues I have, the errors I have, my mental health stuff, my health stuff, my my life alongside my mixedness and the mixedness of the people who come and share their lives with me on the show as well. And there's times that I do try to make this a smaller thing than it is, but Militantly Mixed being both the first long-term running podcast on mixed race identity and accomplishing five years and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award winner, multiple articles written, you know, opportunities I've had to speak at different institutions because of doing the show. These are all very big accomplishments that over the years I've tried to make a lot smaller than they are. And I'm trying to be done with that. I'm trying to acknowledge things when they're happening Um, and enjoy it when it's happening. And I'll admit, I can't always enjoy it when it's happening. Last, the last couple weeks in particular, we're, we're both happy and tough, because I'm also dealing with um, the health of my elderly cats. I have two 16 year olds and two nine year olds and my 16 year olds. 
both have different health issues and we've been dealing with a lot of medical stuff within the last couple of weeks and it's only going to get more difficult as time goes on because they are both 16 and there's one that we're going most likely to lose for soon. So that's been tough and it's been tough to, to, to try to acknowledge my sadness and, and anticipation mourning that I'm going through at the same time that I was also celebrating and ex- acknowledging an accomplishment that I had. And there was times I was feeling guilty about acknowledging what I was happy and celebrating at the same time that I'm sort of preemptively mourning the loss of my my favorite cat. <laughs> um, and so it's just like, it was just been a lot. Like I'm, I'm both happy and sad at the same time. And it's such a good, um, metaphor for what it's like to be a depressed person. Like literally even when I'm happy, I'm always depressed chemically, you know, it's like a, a whole thing. But in this case, I was running through depression, high happiness and high sadness all at the same time. And it was very distracting. I wasn't really on my game um, across the board. And last week I made this huge fail, technologically speaking. And um, I accidentally deleted some very important things that make it possible for me to even produce Militantly Mix. Uh, Some of which I was able to rebuild and some of which is gone completely. And I have to basically just start from here going forward. And it was so disappointing and so frustrating. And I really took it out on myself. I tried to give myself grace. I tried to sit in silence and just let myself work through the anger so that I could get into a better place. But I'll admit, like, initially I was not there. It's taken me um, a little, like, a week to kind of forgive myself for my error. But, you know, it's one of those things, like, it wasn't a big enough error. No one no one got hurt or harmed or anything like that. It just it, it caused more work for me. But coming off the back of hitting a milestone like five years, making a mistake like the mistake I made, it felt like such a rookie thing. And so I, I like doubly punished myself for it. But I think what I was actually doing was trying to find a way to process my, my sadness about what's happening with my cats and putting it on me as a you're just a failure across the board. Literally celebrating a f- accomplishment like five years of a mixed race podcast, a very niche podcast. And here I was like, you're not good enough. What are you doing? You should just quit your life <laughs> and everything. It was it was a rough time. But I'm feeling better today. I'm, I'm still happy and sad. I'm still going through that right now. I, I think I will be going through that for quite a while as things progress with my cats and stuff. But I wanted to talk about it. One, because this is how I hold myself accountable now. I I can tell myself to do something or to make space for myself or give myself grace all I want. Uh, But without any external thing to hold me accountable, I won't stick with it. Uh, So talking about some of these big things that happen in my life on the show is one of those ways in which I'm able to um, remind myself it's okay to feel pain, remind myself it's okay to fail and find a new way back for success, that every failure is a lesson, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, or to even view like a mistake as failure. That's the other part. I, I'm really calling this failure, but it was just a mistake. I just made a mistake that cost me an extra five hours of work. That's basically what happened at the, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a deal, but it impacted me so heavily. And I think that's because I haven't been allowing myself to feel the other things I need to feel. 
Uh, so I just decided to take it out on this. So I kind of wanted to share that uh, because I'm concerned that that's been obvious in previous episodes of the show, recent episodes of the show, but I haven't been acknowledging or even seen that that's what was going on. And there's been times when just in the last couple of weeks, in the midst of celebrating the fifth year anniversary and how excited I am about this show and everything I've accomplished so far, also thinking you should quit because you're a big failure. And I have been going through that the last couple of weeks. And it's so ridiculous because I'm not a failure. I just made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake that cost me five extra hours of work. And I was about to burn it all to the ground because of my accident, you know. <sighs> so life is tough is all I'm saying. And I want us to try to give ourselves a little bit of grace and actually try to actually give ourselves grace, not just tell people that we're doing it and then behind closed doors just ripping ourselves to shreds because that is really what I've been doing the last couple of weeks. It's easy to turn it off when I have to record or when I'm on a live or when I'm in front of people. But when I'm quiet and when I'm by myself, I've been just tearing myself down the last few weeks. And it's, it's been, um, dangerously teetering on, I'm going to stop everything I'm doing because of how bad I was treating myself. So I'm admitting it out loud. I'm putting it on the show so that I actively am holding myself accountable to stop treating myself so terribly. <laughs> Whew. I didn't expect that to be in this intro, but that's what happened. So what are you going to do? Uh, but I'm excited to share this week's episode. My guest and I had such a good conversation and he is about to release a book that just on the concept alone... I just adore this as the way to reflect representation matters. My guest today is host and anchor for NFL Network's Michael Yam, a.k.a. Mike Yam, a.k.a. Yam. Uh, he is of Chinese and Italian-American heritage, and he is about to release a book. At the time I'm recording this, the book will be released in, within days. Uh, at the time this episode airs, it'll either be on the same air date or a couple days after, from what we understand. Uh, but he's about to release a book called Fried Rice and Marinara, which is the story about a four-year-old boy who, whose birthday, his fourth birthday is coming up, and his family wants him to pick what kind of food he wants to serve at his birthday party and so he goes down the journey to try to figure out as a Chinese and Italian person do I serve Chinese food do I serve Italian food and of course his journey ends in him figuring out he can serve both and be his full mixed ass self for his fourth birthday which I just love this idea of using food as the way we get validation I mean, I talk about food on the show all the time with my guests, and you know I think food is such a big part of our, of our cultural access, especially as mixed folks, that um, this being a journey of a four-year-old trying to figure out what to serve at his birthday party and wanting to acknowledge his full picture, I'm Chinese and Italian, how do I do this? It's so brilliant. I just love it. And I had such a great time chatting with Mike on this episode that I can't wait for y'all to hear it. A couple of things. There are some slight audio issues on his side, um, most of which I was able to work around, but but some of it just happens, you know, um, some clicks and some pops and some dropouts, but it, it's mostly fine. But I wanted to acknowledge it because you know how I feel about my sound. In addition to the book, which is coming out soon, 
it actually has an origin as an animated short cartoon for a company called Vooks, which is books with a V, video books, V-O-O-K-S dot com. Originally, I think he was supposed to or asked to try to tell sports stories or get sports people involved so that they can tell stories to help literacy in children ages two to eight, I believe is the age group, with this site, with the videos from this site, with the books from this site. And in the in this random conversation that he has with his cousin, he ends up getting the idea for fried rice and marinara, and that ended up becoming a short. And this is about two to three years ago. And now that short is turned into a book. So I'm really glad that we have access to multiple ways of receiving media, um, telling stories about mixed people now. And if I'm honest, I'm like hella jealous that the mixed generation that follows me <laughs> has so much more access to media reflecting them um, than I had at that age. I mean, I'm proud of it. I'm happy for y'all. Um, I consume all of the possible media that you can that is about mixedness. I really, 100%, I support it. I'm happy for you. But I'm mad jealous that I didn't have an equivalent to fried rice and marinara when I was, when I was a kid, if I'm honest. Mike is offering a full year subscription for, I think it's just for a limited time or a little mid amount of people. Uh, I don't know how many subscriptions he has available, but if you go to books.com and you sign up for access to the full library, uh, which does include fried rice and marinara, the video shorts, um, you can enter code yam, just Mike's last name, and you should get granted a full year's subscription to uh, the books catalog. So this is for those of you that are parents of children that are, I think, between the ages of two and eight or two and 10 or something like that. If you would like to just see the video, it is available on YouTube for free right now as well. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but watch the video on YouTube and then head on over to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you like to get books and ask them if they're not already carrying it to uh, get you a copy of fried rice and marinara so that you can share that with your little mixed babies as well. And that's it. So let's get into this episode. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Michael Yam. guest today is michael yam yam why don't you tell everybody about yourself and let's get into it yeah well i appreciate the uh the invite on the show absolute pleasure to be with you and I'm, i am a host and anchor over at nfl network I've been doing sports for a very long time i don't you know at this point it's sort of odd because i used to always be the young guy in mm. in our newsrooms and that is no longer the case so um i've been doing this for for a significant period of time worked at a bunch of different sports networks and we got the book that's coming out fried rice and marinara super super excited about it and i think in a lot of ways it's like perfect for an audience that you have that we have now lived which is people that grew up with a lack of stories around um, mixed races and identities and 
probably some confusion and you know feeling the need to pick sides here and there and I think hopefully the story will resonate with a lot of people that listen to your show yeah and what's your mix Chinese Italian that's my bad <laughs> we talked about this beforehand you said hey when you, do your show, can you just throw your mix out there and I totally blank so right off the bat I am everybody does <laughs> And it, it like as a mixed person having to ask people what are you? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> like, it's a really better, good point. It's a really find a better way point. to answer that yeah. ask that question. Well, I'm glad to have you here, and I'm really excited about the idea and the concept behind the book because you're right we we didn't grow up with a lot of this type of stuff, and and short of being able to kind of make it up on our own, really finding ways for us to feel represented in in media or anything like that. This is the time. Like, there's so much more available now, and I'm so excited about it. And like you, I'm I'm experienced in the uh, I'm always the old one now, which was new. It's very strange to always be the old one. Technically, I always mentally I'm the old one like I feel like I'm a 90 year old trapped in in a 45 year old body but now all my guests are starting to lean towards the younger side and the way they experience mixedness is so different from the way that I experience mixedness that it's a totally different evolution of the show and of me but let's get into it so uh Chinese Italian growing up you had access to both cultures it seems based off of what you created oh yeah yeah, yeah, no, there's there's no question. So my dad um, was born in Hong Kong, came over when he was 16, and kind of the, the classic immigration story, although I shouldn't use the term classic because I know that there's different variations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom is Italian, but she was born in the Bronx. But essentially my dad's side of the family, so the Chinese side, my grandfather, they did not have much in Hong Kong. And mm-hmm. what essentially happened was my grandfather knew that there was a ship that was going to be heading to the States. He got on, he got a job basically as a sailor knowing this, hopped onto the boat, docked in Baltimore, full intention not to get back onto the boat, uh, which is exactly what transpired. And from there was hiding out, getting chased by authorities at different times, was mm parking in kitchens, Chinese restaurants. Um, occasionally people would show up at the restaurant and my dad would tell me like, hey, you know, your grandpa used to like literally run out the back and hide in a dumpster so that he wouldn't get caught. Um, mm. and I was able to save enough money, get an attorney. He ended up going up to New York and was able to find an immigration lawyer. From that point, you know, saved the cash, was able to fly my grandmother, my dad, my uncle, and my aunt to the States where they lived. Wow. In New York, my dad at that point was 16 and it was about 10 years without having his dad um, Mm. around. And I know that that was really tough on him. And when he got to the States, you know, didn't know, didn't speak any English. So I think there was, you know, a massive learning curve from that perspective, Um, you know, was able to work his way through school. And uh, right now he's, he works as a cytotechnologist, which is basically it's like cytology is the study of cells. So when you get your blood drawn, they put it on a slide, the guy that reads the slides through the microscope, that's essentially what my dad does. Mm. Um, and then on my mom's side, which is the Italian side, you know, grew up in the Bronx and from there, um, you know, decided to go down a path of nursing. So my mom was a nurse for a really long period of time and then had me. And at that point decided like, hey, like these hours, the schedule is not really conducive to, to being a mom. So she decided to go down the path of academia and worked her way up from 
teaching to a dean to a provost, and now she's the president of Notre Dame of Maryland um, mm. in Baltimore. So it's sort of like the, the high level overview. But to answer your question about being influenced by both ethnicities, there's there's no doubt it was really prevalent. You know, the, the stories fried rice and marinara. And while I never had fried rice and marinara as a kid, my birthday parties were both Chinese food and Italian food. I mean, both literally were in the room. You had the option. <laughs> People mixed it up and went down that path. And I think, you know, as a young kid, there were times, Charmaine, I was like, yo, my birthday party is like, we had the best food. Like it nice. wasn't close in my mind, you know? So, <laughs> and it was, it was kind of that badge of honor where I felt really good about, about having that and, and having that experience. That sounds awesome. And one of the things that does come up, and I think it just sort of started accidentally is someone had mentioned food and liking to do a little extra or something to it to make it as, you know, representative of, of both the cultures that they came from. And that sparked me constantly asking, like, what's your favorite hybrid food? Like, what do you do to mix both of your cultures if you can, or multiple of your cultures? And the answers that I've gotten over the years make me so excited. Like, my fantasy is one day if I could have the potluck that consists of all the things that people have talked about over the years, like, I think that would be out of control, insane, amazing. But I love the idea that being able to just exist, like have these birthday parties with just so happens to have all the foods that you love from both of your cultures coming together into this story that you've created that is now for the next generation of mixed folks that might get a chance to see themselves in a way that we didn't get to see ourselves when we were growing up. So let's talk a little bit about what made that happen for you. What, what makes sportscaster decide to write a children's book about hybrid food? (laughs) (laughs) A great question. So it's sort of a long story that's taken a lot of turns. And you mentioned the sports casting side of things. So I was so used to telling stories of athletes. And, you know, on the theme of, of you know, mixed kids, my cousin who's Chinese, uh, her husband is Jewish. So they have three little ones who are, are amazing. Uh, and at one point a few years ago, my cousin Mel had said to me, she said, hey, do you know of any stories about you know, Asian kids or mixed race kids, because I just don't have many options for, for the kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't answer yes. I, I didn't know of, of anything. And there was a company, so essentially an old analyst who's one of my best friends, who I used to work with at Pac-12 Network, is now one of the analysts for the Portland Trailblazers. And he's been helping out one of his buddies, who's now become one of my buddies, who's now the CEO of a company called Books. And books is a really cool platform because essentially what they do is they take um, fully animated story or they take full stories and then they animate them with full narration and read along text, which really mm-hmm. helps fast track the reading skills for children. So they were hoping to get into more on the sports realm and they had reached out and I, I got them in touch with a couple, you know, of, are you a current or a former athlete? I guess if you're a former athlete, you've always been an athlete, but um, people who have now moved past their professional career might be the best way of describing it. And I got them in touch and they started doing some stories in the sports world. And as I was going through their catalog, it dawned on me, they just didn't necessarily have something for kids like us who, Mm -hmm. you know, had mixed, you know, races and, and there just wasn't a lot of inventory, which also led to the question that my cousin Mel had asked me. And I'm thinking to myself, man, like, I know I can do some of these stories. Like, this would be a really cool project. 
And in 2020, after almost 10 years at Pac-12 Network, I was let go during COVID. So I had a little bit of time mm. on my hands while I was searching for my next opportunity, but it was something that was in the back of my mind. And I had this idea to do Fried Rice and Marinara, which essentially was about a little boy. It was his fourth birthday party, and he just didn't know what to do because his mom said, you need to pick the food. And he was like, you know, Mikey's sitting there going like, well, I'm Chinese and Italian. Like, do I have Chinese food or do I have Italian food? And this whole idea of having to pick a side was a real struggle for mm. before. And he goes to his grandmothers and asks them like for their advice. And his Chinese grandmother says, well, in Hong Kong, we did Chinese food. And, you know, his grandmother on the Italian side said, well, in Italy, we, we do Italian food. So he's just lost, just doesn't know necessarily what to do. And his friend Sophia says, Mike, man, like you're, you're Chinese Italian, just have both. Well, it dawns on him at that point that he actually has got the ability to have both the Italian food and Chinese food. And he comes up with this idea for fried rice and marinara. And yes, the kids absolutely loved it because it is a children's book. So we'll have a happy ending. But I think there's a lot of themes, Charmaine, that as I was writing it, I think resonated with some of the things that I was experiencing as a kid that I never really thought about. Mm -hmm. And then certainly now as the book is is about to launch, because the, the videos have done well enough where books said, you know what, let's try to make this thing, you know, a hard copy. So I'm super excited just because I never thought in a gazillion years like this would actually be a real thing. But I think as, as I sort of process now uh, this story and thinking about diversity and the lack thereof in children's literature, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of sparking more ideas and, and hopefully there's some more books to come. Right. I love the idea of it being, I mean, children's books, I think has a lot of crossover. There's no reason why you can't have an animated companion piece to a book or vice versa, especially given the fact that people like to take in media in different ways. So I, I love that it came from this. Is the video accessible? Is that something that we could Yeah, we yeah. Could share? So the video is um, completely free on YouTube. And um, I'll tell you what, actually, books has gifted me a whole lot of free subscriptions. So if anyone wants um, to have a, everyone's got a little one in their family and wants access to the entire library of animated stories, um, it's a free year. You can just use my last name, Yam, when you sign up, and that'll give you a free, free year of books. So typically the age range is anywhere from two to eight years uh, old and once again it's just a really cool reading tool and it's something that I wish I had when I was a kid because quite honestly I had some struggles learning to read <laughs> when I was pretty young I, I have these flashbacks of my mom sitting next to me on the couch and sounding out words and turning the pages and the whole thing so something like this would have been really really helpful right. for me. That's awesome. And I will go ahead and put that in the show notes so that um, our parents can have that opportunity. So let's get into a little bit of reading and language then. As a mixed kid, is part of it having to do with having the different dialects, the different accents, and the different languages in your household? So my dad, as I made reference to a little bit earlier, he he did not speak English when he came to this country, but his siblings probably speaks the best English. And my mom obviously was born here. So from an English standpoint, that was never as much of an issue. There was an emphasis, and this was me just being pain in the butt kid. Um, you know, I went to Chinese school mm -hmm. for a very, very, very short period of time. Um, that was happening in the summers. I was supposed to learn Chinese when, when I was growing up. So I was born in the Bronx. We grew up in the Bronx for a few years and then we moved to New Jersey which is where it's still kind of home in a lot of ways, despite the fact that I've lived in California now for the better part of 10 years. But mm -hmm. I did not, I, I hate Charmaine, I hated going. 
Chinese school. I mean, it's the <laughs> summer. We just did a whole year. You like, are you play. kidding me? It just exactly like I got sports. I got to go to the pool. I got I got real things that I needed to take care of. So I was a pain in the butt. Did not want to go. I do flashback and remember sitting in the classroom a couple times and just being absolutely miserable. It is truly one of my biggest regrets to not be able to speak. My grandparents, uh, they did not speak English on on my dad's side. And my cousins are fluent. They used to translate for me. And mm. I wish that that was not the case. It's not like the relationship, you know, probably lacked a little bit more depth. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there was always a caring and, and I knew sort of where I stood and, and how, how much they meant to me. So for even a lack of ability to communicate like like you and I are right now, that inability, I don't think really stopped, um, you know, a high, high degree of love and care. Mm -hmm. I think there is something between grandparents that even when there is a language barrier, there's just sort of an understanding you come from each other in some way, shape or form. And so uh, there's a different thing. In, in my case, my Japanese side, the military told my grandmother not to teach her half-breed children Japanese because it would confuse their brains, which always surprised me because like she already spoke two languages. And yeah. so to think that, you know, are you confused? How were you convinced, you know, just because white people told you like that not to do it. So she was really strict about not teaching Japanese to my mother and her sisters. And even when I came around, there was just a handful of things that we always said in Japanese just to make sure other people couldn't understand what we were talking about. It usually had to do with people's races, usually had to do with food and having to go to the bathroom. So like those are the only things that we could really communicate well in Japanese. And then um, I was lucky enough to still have my great grandparents around until Actually, I was an adult when they finally passed, but um, I got to see them up until I was 18 years old. And then I didn't get to see them for the last 10 years of their life. But me and my great grandfather, we shared a love of bananas and Coca-Cola. And so we would just sit together and drink our little Coca-Colas and our little and it was Hawaiian bananas. So they were like the half size bananas. Oh, yeah, yeah. And to this day, I can't I cannot eat a full size banana because I ate so many half size bananas with my great grandfather um, <laughs> that that's like where I tap out like I can't I can't go any yeah. further. But that was the thing that, you know, I got to share. And I feel like there was love between us, even though we really couldn't communicate too much. And with my great grandmother, it was she would squeeze my grandmother did this too. She would squeeze the pads of my fingers. So we would just sit and she would just squeeze the pads of my fingers and stuff like that. And while also feeding us constantly until we feel like we're going to throw up um, because that's how Asians do it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's no question. There's no question. You know, it's interesting because I use the term regret on not being fluent in in Chinese, and I'm curious because it sounds like there's at least a little bit of a similar experience. Like, do you have that in, in your mind at all? Yeah, so it was very frustrating. I, and I still wish I had um, better fluency because I, I certainly understand more because I heard Japanese. I just couldn't speak it very often. And when I started to take Japanese in school as in, a, in college, my grandma still wouldn't help. Like I'd come and be like, can you help me understand stuff like that? Because I had a Japanese teacher who was very anti he basically walked in the first day and he says, how many of you have Japanese at home? And seven of us raised our hands. And he's like, all of you will fill my class because it's easier to teach Americans the what he wanted than to teach people who had home Japanese into like a yeah. formal Japanese or whatever. And so I, I, I struggled and I was like, this is not how we say it at home. Like, can you help me? And she wouldn't do it. Now, when I was 30 and living in a different state and I would call her speaking what little Japanese I had learned by that point, absolutely willing to talk to me. And 
I just hate that I couldn't have a full blown conversation with her and, and that I couldn't also do that with my great grandparents because I wanted to be able to find out about the home. Like, what was it like growing up? Sure. What was, what was the war like? Cause I've heard little stories from my grandmother, but they're so tight lipped about some of the stuff that they went through. It was like, was there a way I could have done it better if I spoke you know, more Japanese. So my thing is, uh, now I have regret that I hadn't put more effort in as an adult, but what, whatever it is, regret, remorse, like, I just wish they didn't listen to the Americans, you know, like, I just wish they didn't assimilate so hard and Japanese are really known for assimilation. So I have that to fight against also, but I, you know, I just wish I could have had like one conversation that wasn't about snow crabs with my great grandmother or, you know what I'm saying? Or like one conversation that wasn't about Coca-Cola and bananas with my grandfather, you know, and it would have been, it would have been really nice. And then in in terms, terms of like the, the childhood invalidity that we experience as mixed Asians sometimes, if I could have busted out with something more than like, I'm, you know, like I'm a mixed Japanese. If I could have said more than that in a really what you know, like, and people got what I was saying, I think I would have felt a little bit more like, I had permission to be in spaces yeah. that that has taken me 40 years. Like I didn't start to feel that permission until I was in my forties. And so now you can't tell me shit, but back then, you know, I could easily have been told yeah. not, you know, like this is not your space and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think, and it's tough. Like I feel bad for the kids who had opportunity for language. And I heard this, especially with Chinese school. I've heard this a lot on the show uh, where someone's just like, oh, because it's such a drain at the time. Like, it's so much work. It's so many hours. It's during summer. It's, you know, you you want to live life you and you don't want to be an other. You already are an other. You don't want to be another level of an other because you now you have to go to Chinese school and you can't go, you know, play football sure. or whatever. You don't know that you're going to regret it. You have no way to conceive of this kind of regret as a child. So how do you convince a child? No, no, you're really going to appreciate this, you know when you're older because yeah. they they tell us that about like math and most of us yeah. don't use the kind no of math doubt. we used no in doubt. high school so you know like come on so yeah I, I think it's tough I I wish there was a way that we could hit that button and just go back and be bilingual if we could you know um not to mention that it's just like to being to be able to think in two languages would be really helpful I think sometimes because there's some things that I know I can't explain in English well enough but i know this one phrase in japanese is like this all makes sense so unfortunately i have to explain it in terrible english to make you understand what it is i'm feeling you know it would have been nice (laughs) no i'm 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 with you and i think that there is an association look it's language it's food certainly comes to mind those are the the two verticals that i think people automatically associate with specific identities and culture um you know can you speak the language and the connector i think has always been been in a lot of ways food for people who are outside of that ethnicity mm-hmm. to understand so i, mm-hmm. I always kind of use it as, as sort of a vehicle there but you know when you don't speak the language and, and that's certainly in my situation you know, I took Italian when I was in high school and one year in college. Um, I could tell you through those five years, I probably spoke more Italian when I was on vacation in Italy over the mm-hmm. course of a week, learned more just being immersed in it right. than, than the five years in school. And 
you know, don't speak at all um, any Chinese other than some some bad words. Um, yeah, some things that I probably words. Say on, on, <laughs> on this podcast, right? But um, it is definitely a, a huge regret. I, I I really wish, and you know, I think there's probably people listening to the podcast now and they're like, yo, why don't you why don't you learn? I also don't think I have a knack for it. Uh, I think there's some things that I can do really well and some things that I struggle with mightily. And it is such an undertaking. It's so crazy to me too, because I remember being younger and I don't know if you experienced this or not, but being at a family party and I would just, I'd be sitting there listening to everyone speak Chinese. And if they were talking about me, I wouldn't have known. Like there was no Oh, you weren't even picking pick it up? up. I was not picking it up at all, like literally nothing. And, uh, you know, I, I think back to that and I think back to those opportunities, you know, as a kid, when you have the time to go to school, to learn it, when you really can absorb it at a much, probably a much faster rate than I could at this point and just mm-hmm. do it. Um, you know, I, I do kick myself for that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I, I took French in high school and I was able to get us around France, you know, on a family trip and things like that enough and, and, you know, got kind of fooled into thinking I was somewhat fluent. And then years go by, I have no reason to use the language besides watching movies on occasion. And sometimes I can turn away, you know, for a little while. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Nope, that lost me, you know, then I got to go back and, you know, uh, so that definitely happens. But since I've moved to Mexico, the, the most curious thing, nothing I would have ever expected happened. I hear the Spanish, which I didn't take in school. And I'm trying to learn now. And my I can answer it in French. Like I can answer the questions that I'm hearing in Spanish wow. in French. And so my French is coming back because I'm in a Spanish speaking country. It makes no sense. I had no preparation for that. Like I didn't realize that, that was going to happen. And then the other thing is it because I'm thinking about how important it is to learn a new language. I'm thinking about the answer in Japanese too. And, Cause I have been sort of working with a tutor for the last uh, couple of years in Japanese. And then I've started to do that for Spanish too, once I knew I was coming here. And so they'll speak to me in Spanish. I can't answer you in Spanish, but I can all of a sudden answer you in French and Japanese. And it is the weirdest thing ever to have something like that happen. Cause I don't know what's clearly my brain is understanding something, but it's not explaining to me what it's understanding, I guess. Those connectors, man, it's hard. It's yeah. like, give me that, whatever that one is, put turn that one on so that I can understand why I understand how to answer or respond in French or in Japanese right now. So my goal about living here, I think, is if in two years at least I can do one episode of Militantly Mixed in Spanish with a mixed Spanish-speaking person, then I'll feel like, yes, I did, you know. I, I, I mean, that's that's like next level stuff right there. If you can get that going down, I'd be like, yo, like this is I'm um, I'm officially in. I'm right. In like if I point. can do that and I don't know if two years is is long enough of a time, but I'm hoping with the like physical immersion that might be possible sure. because that was one thing I remember saying all through high school when I was trying to figure out how to get more Japanese in me. It was just like I want to be able to ask great grandma about her being like my age, you know, like I really just wanted to know like, what was it like for her at my age? Because she married, she was from, even though Samurai had been done by that point, she was alive when they were transitioning out. Like, so they were still very much like the class of Samurai. Like that was still part of her upbringing. And I want to be able to say like, was it a big deal when you stepped down and married a lower, like my great grandfather was also from a Samurai class, but he was like a lower class of cast I guess maybe and like I want to know if that was a big deal 
But how do you ask that in English to a, you know, a relative yeah. who only speaks Japanese and, and also be able to answer why I wanted to know, because this is not stuff the Japanese would necessarily talk about, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's sort of interesting. You, you touched on this a little while ago and you're sort of revisiting it, this idea of not necessarily getting all the information. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote this op-ed around, you know, this was, 2020-ish, 2019, there was a lot of really negative stories in the news regarding right. uh, immigration in the United States and families being separated. And I mean, it was heartbreaking to see that. I mean, I, I turn on the news and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, like you have these kids away from their parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why? Like that is the most heartless thing over, over, over what? Not being in a, or not being born in the States, not having you know, basic human rights and, and people really willing to sacrifice and pick up like that's just difficult in its entirety. So which is part of the reason why I wrote that op-ed and, and sort of talked a little bit about my family's path to the U.S., which, you know, God forbid, if that was, you know, many decades ago, if that was now, like, I don't I don't know if there's, you know, a spot, you know, in the United States for mm -hmm. It was a little bit different, you know, back then in the 60s um, and, and certainly the 70s. But, you know, the point is, I'm asking, you know, my dad some of these questions. We didn't really have those conversations growing mm -hmm. up. Like I would hear more from my mom about my dad's path. And then I would ask my cousins when I was putting the story together, I would ask my cousins and like, they didn't really have answers. So I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I thought it was my dad. And then I realized like, oh, maybe it's like just my, my dad and my aunt. And it's like a family thing. And it's like, oh, like this and I start asking other people, and it's like, no, 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 like this might be like an Asian thing. Like it's like Asian thing. Yeah. Generation, like they don't want to talk about some of this stuff that that has transpired, yeah. which I understand because a lot of it is not necessarily the happiest, you know, memories. Like you know, I do. There was this one point. Uh, you know, I grew up in, in New Jersey. Used to go to Manhattan all the time. I went to Fordham, which is up in the Bronx, and. You know, when I was in college, you know, you'd go into Manhattan and you'd go out and you'd have a really good time with your, your friends. And I'll never forget this. There was one time, you know, we were in the lower, uh, lower east side somewhere and, you know, hanging out, you know, going to a couple of the, the places with my friends. And then a week or two later, my dad, you know, picked me up and we were doing dinner and we're driving downtown. And we happened to be in that same area of the Lower East Side that I was mm -hmm. just at with some of my buddies. And my dad said, oh, yeah, we used to live, you know, our apartment place was a couple blocks from here. I'm like, mm. what? what do you mean your apartment was a couple blocks from here? He's like, oh, you know, when we came to New York, you know, they, there was a small apartment. And he was like, you know, my, you know, your aunt and, and your uncle, like the three of us, she shared, you know, a bedroom. It was the three of us. It was this really like tight, tight apartment. Mm. And I was, there was almost like a sense of embarrassment. Mm. I'm like thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, like. Here it is, all these decades later, right? Like you have a family, you know, I'm born, I'm, I'm privileged enough to go to a, you know, a great university. I'm downtown hanging out with my friends, you know, going to this bar, you know, having a good time yeah. on a Saturday night. And little did I know, you know, two, three blocks from where I was having fun in my early 20s, like here it is my dad and, and my family, like there was real struggles at that right. point. And there's just like this really weird, sense of I don't even know how if I'm classifying it or, or characterizing it correctly or I don't even know how to maybe if I knew Chinese getting back to our conversation <laughs> there'd be a Chinese phrase that that would really be able to explain this but it, it, I just remember in my mind going oh my god like how lucky am I to be able mm -hmm. to do these things and right. have this type of life where my dad who's in the car with me did not have that growing yeah up. one of the things that I think about a lot especially doing this show more than anything is 
like you don't know your parents as people and you don't know your grandparents as people. You know them as your parents, you know them as grandparents. So you don't really know about besides like the general family stories that people are comfortable sharing. Like, obviously, you have to say we left Hong Kong and came to the States. We left yeah. Italy and came to the States. Like you have to know that whatever made them immigrate, there was a reason, a purpose. And and so that you may generally know. But like, how hard was that decision to say for probably up to 10 years, if not longer, I'm going to be apart from my family yeah. to try to have what is, I'm assuming is perceived a better life than what they had there, you know, like, and how, how tough a decision that must be. And, and when I decided to leave the country, um, I was trying to mirror to an extent the experiences that my grandmothers have, because both of my grandmothers are from other countries. And I was like, you know, I want to, I want to understand them a little bit better as people, given like, what was the gap in communication between us in terms of who they are as regular people. And then it just dawned on me after like being here a couple months, there's no way my experience is going to be like my grandmother's because they came because they married Americans and maybe they came because they were also trying to escape the environments that they came up in. I kind of think that I kind of don't know. I know a little bit more about my Japanese grandmother than my British grandmother. Um, But in my case, I came here by choice. I am, am, you know, I'm, it wasn't a forced choice to be an immigrant. You know what I'm saying? Like, besides the fact that I feel like my country is deteriorating in a way that's not comfortable for someone who looks like me. um, I want to be in another place to experience another culture in the ways that my grandmothers did. And yet I'll never understand their experience because I don't have the pressure as the reason why I came here. And so it kind of felt like, Oh, I'm, you know, this thing, this, if I just knew a little bit better, I wouldn't have had such a naive approach to the, you know, to this decision. Um, Mind you, I was going to do this anyway, but it's just the, the original thing that I had in my mind was kind of blown out of the water to make this decision. And then to come from two families where, I mean, I guess generationally it would have been different of when your Italian family immigrated versus when, um, like, do you have any, were your grandparents uh, also born in the States? So Yeah, so on my mom's side, the Italian side, they were also born in the U.S. So it's my great grandparents on that side that had left Italy to come to the States. But, um, you know, I, and you just said something that sort of resonates with me. And I, I don't know if you think about it in, in this regard. You would say, hey, like, I don't have that pressure. Like, I made a conscious decision to head to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I, like that's a great thing right like think right. about you know what i mean like i, I your, your family probably didn't have much of a choice right like I, yeah. I think the situation in hong kong was so crappy uh that there wasn't much of a choice like that type yeah. of sacrifice to get to a stage where you can make the decisions that you're making without you know having the need like this was i don't want to call it a luxury because i don't want to characterize and i don't know you well enough but mm-hmm. it's not like oh my god like we're living in poverty and you know under a communist regime like we don't have it right like, right like not a good situation like we need to bounce right so I, I think you know like that's definitely from my perspective a, a huge positive that that you don't necessarily feel that pressure and you have the freedom to be able to to move about um, accordingly. And, and, you know, I do think about all the stories that are in the news right now regarding um, immigration. I know my own personal family's, you know, situation like that is not, not ideal. And 
as you made reference to, like, I can't imagine the sacrifice that says, hey, for 10 years, like, I'm out, mm-hmm. like, I'll send you cash, like, I'll help out, but like, I won't be physically, physically present, um, you know, not to make this a sports thing, but I think there's a certain level of toughness that comes with, mm-hmm. with a story like that. Yeah. And, you know, when, when COVID was happening, I think a lot of us watched and maybe you can, um, and I'm taking for granted that people watch this, but on Netflix, there was a documentary series, The Last Dance about mm-hmm. Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, like so crazy. Well done. Like you gotta be kidding me. It was awesome yeah. to watch that. It stuff, was a right? good, yeah, it was a good. It was amazing. Question. There was one, like for basketball fans, I'll probably remember this. There was a player named Tony Kukoc, who was a European player. And, you know, nowadays you're seeing some of the top players in the world some of the top players in the NBA be European players, mm-hmm. you know, back then in the nineties, like hell no, like it was they a different were... brand of basketball. Like there, there yeah. was no way they would ever characterize these players as tough. In fact, they were called soft. And there was one line in the documentary, and I think it was Michael Wilbon who, who works at ESPN. And Wilbon made this great point. And he said, you know, people would call Tony soft and they don't realize like he came from, from a country where there's literally bombs going yeah. off and explosions. They were escaping. Like, yeah, yeah. And and like that's a different that's a different like you you'd never say that someone with that path and that upbringing was soft. Like if anything, like they're the toughest mother effers out there because mm-hmm. that's what their experience is. Like here we go like oh my God, are you kidding me? Like if I don't get hot water going, you know, my, my hot water heater is like busted up and I go I have to go a day without it or, you know, worst case scenario, my Wi-Fi is down. Like we don't know what to do with ourselves. Yeah. You know, it's it just a different type of mentality. And I, I do think, and I actually did some research on this. It's called like, um, there's one, one theory, like the migrant advantage is what it's classified as. And it's this idea that when you're in these really negative situations and you, you're literally forced to leave your home, which is just think about that for a moment. You're forced to leave your home because mm-hmm. the, the conditions are so bad. There's a certain level of toughness that comes with that and this ability to want to make sure that you're elevating yourself and putting mm-hmm. yourself and you're willing to take any single job. You're willing to do 10 jobs at once. Um, you know, my dad is not retired yet. I've never known my dad to, to have less than three jobs. Like that yeah. has never never happened before. And do I think that there's like a scarcity thing in his mind, maybe from his upbringing? Sure. Like, I think yeah. that's definitely a part of it, but um, it's sort of fascinating. And I know I've gone on like this crazy tangent, but um, no, this is when, when you said yeah. about your move, that's kind of what I was thinking about. No, I think about stuff like that all the time because um, like I was, you know, I said, I think it was off air with you that I said, you know, I could have stayed in the U.S., I was surviving, but here with the same thing that I was surviving with, I can actually thrive a little bit here. And it's not that there aren't different pressures. There absolutely are are different pressures, but the fact that I'm able to do the things that I do, like I'm able to continue doing my podcast without the fear of having to end it because I can't afford to do it anymore, which was a real thing to me a year ago. Like I was really trying to figure out financially, how do I keep it going in my current situation? Uh, um, and here, I don't necessarily have that fear. I do have some debt to pay off to, to, you know, get back to comfortable where it comes to the, where the show is concerned and things like that, but I can exhale and be able to do that here. Uh, I don't know if my grandmothers had the equivalent of that. You know, both of my grandmothers are from World War II era. Both of them experienced different aspects of the war as children. And, in the way that it made my Japanese grandmother kind of obsessed with America, 
um, because the way the treatment of the U.S. soldiers when they came was different than the propaganda that Hirohito was sharing. She knew she wanted to come up to America eventually. So in her case, she might have been fulfilling a dream, but also getting away from something that was not comfortable for her. You know, I don't know. I can't ask that question. I mean, I I could. I don't know if she would answer the question, I think is more <laughs> accurate. Uh, but with my great grandparents, they came later and they came because by that point, a couple of their children had moved over. And I don't know if it was a hard decision for them. You know, I have no idea what made them do this. And I won't be able to ask that question. And well, now they're gone. But um, I don't know if anybody did ask that question before. And so now my grandmother's generations are starting to to pass now, too. And so, like, the window is getting smaller to find out why did we leave, you know? And then here I'm only two generations later and I want to go back. So why do I want to go back? I want to go back because I don't have any information, you know, and if I had known more, maybe I wouldn't want to go back. I don't know. All I know is that my grandma on several occasions have asked me, why are you so obsessed with Japan? You're not Japanese. And the way in which that is made, put me through a spiral because I didn't understand the whole national identity versus ethnic identity thing between her and I, I was like, well, I want to get in touch with who, you know, I am as a Japanese person. And that's, that's why I want to go back uh, or why I'm interested in things like that. And she's just like, I left. So we don't have to worry about Japan anymore. Well, how bad is Japan? You know, like, why don't I, yeah. why don't we know? Like, and, um, and I think that in, in choosing in this case to start by going to a different country that is not connected to anything, I think is probably more mirroring what my grandparents did go through because they went to a country that isn't connected to, to their upbringing in any way, shape or form, which might be different for us as mixed folks. But yeah, it's a, it's a, the older I, I think it's a combination of the older I get, and the desire to connect, coupled with like politically, our climate is so wild that it's just like it's not the same kind of a press, or we're we're not at least experiencing quite yet what I think some other countries have experienced. But for brown queer people, which is my situation, I gotta find a place that I don't feel like I have to be scared all the time. And I was sure. getting to that point where I was starting to feel scared on all the time. I, I make a joke that like I'm gay on the internet not meaning publicly visually, but just like I talk about being a queer person on the internet, you know? And so there's, you know, that makes it smaller where I can go because I've allowed myself to be a public representation yeah. of queerness. And the same with mixes too, you know, here in Mexico, until I open my mouth, I hide completely under the radar and I've never experienced that before. You know, I've never been an invisible person I've never been not stopped on the street by a random stranger to ask me what I am or to ask me where I'm from. And here, when I'm asked where I'm from, they actually believe me when I say I'm from the United States. Whereas in the United States, when I say I'm from the United States, they say, but where are you really from? You know what I'm saying? It's just like such a different experience, I think, than what I would have done, would have had if I had stayed back home. And even, even if I go back home in a month, I'm changed by what I've experienced here. It, it, it's like the longer I'm here, the more impossible it is for me sure, to go back home. Sure. So I wonder that too, with like our families that immigrated, is it impossible for them to go back home? Like, would they want to, if, if some of those pressures like money and different things were alleviated or are they just here now? Yeah. I, it's a really good question. I, I know from, you know, my dad's side, he's talked about going back um, and visiting. Like, I don't think it's a prohibitive thing um 
you know, I think from a leadership change that's happened, I think there might be a little bit more caution, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I, I'd love to go. I've never obviously been. No, um, me neither. I shouldn't say obviously, yeah, but <laughs> people don't know that I haven't. I think for but, some of us, um, it's obvious yeah. that we've not touched soil, <laughs> you know, yeah. like in our yeah. home countries, because we're just yeah. like, we love it. We don't, we don't know. We don't know what yeah. they want to do. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, it's sort of interesting because you had said like, you know, your grandmother was like, well, you're not really Japanese. Like, my God, like that's got to be such a hurtful um, thing to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think for for most of my life, I've never, um, I, I think I've always, if someone says, hey, what are you? I always say I'm half Chinese, half Italian. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that I'm really trying to make an effort to not say anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the top of this podcast, when I forgot to say um, what, <laughs> what my ethnicities <laughs> were, and you had reminded me, I did not say half Chinese, half Italian. I no. just said Chinese, Italian. Chinese, Italian. And I think that there is such a, um, I think when I say half, I think it fuels or feeds into mm-hmm. what your grandmother had said, right? And right. I, you know, I, growing up, like my Chinese side of the family, like never made me feel like I was half. My Italian side That's of the awesome. family never made me feel like I was half. So I think I come from it, I think characterizing it the way that I've always sort of said, was more of like a social thing and mm-hmm. over the years to to sort of hear like well you're not really chinese mm-hmm. um bothersome uh right. for, yeah. for lack of a better phrase like i yeah i just i don't i don't necessarily feel that way and i think even created resentment for a long period of time and it mm-hmm. created more separation from yeah. the culture and understanding of things you had said that now you're in your 40s you, you know it's like yeah you know, I don't get a damn like I'm just gonna yeah. say you know say how I'm feeling like it's sort of the same thing I don't you know I'm 41 now so I don't know if it's now a, a decade thing when you get to your 40s that that becomes the mindset but yeah. you know it wasn't the mindset 10 years ago um, no. and it certainly wasn't the mindset you know when I was in my 20s it's funny how much like external validation is important the younger you are and the older you are, internal validation becomes more important. And I think like when I was younger, when I heard my grandmother say, you're not Japanese, in the context as an American kid, what you're telling me is that even though I come from you, I'm not of you. And that's very confusing. But not knowing her context, which is a national identity versus an ethnic sure. identity, I'm not Japanese because I'm not from Japan. My grandmother even said, I'm not Japanese anymore, meaning I chose to leave. So Japanese aren't going to view me as as Japanese. And then I saw that happen in person once. And I was like, oh, you know, so that kind of helped. But in the beginning, it really was difficult. And then now, as I've crossed over into 40s, and I think that's that fuck it 40 thing that happens. Like once your knees go, you don't care. Um, and so you can't tell me. a while ago, by the way. <laughs> you know, like technically my knees have been gone since I was 20, but... They got, they really went, (laughs) they really left me in, in the forties. And at that point I did get some external validation that helped me, uh, kind of cross over into this idea of like, I can occupy a space where other Asians are. And it also gave me this, the concept, um, I started to think about it this way. We're not Asian in Asia. We're Asians in America. Because back there, we're Japanese, we're Chinese. And even and with Chinese, it's even further, right? 
your Hong Kong Chinese or your or your sure. mainland Chinese and what that means. You know, there's different feelings between those groups, yeah. right? So as we start to like become a fully formed thing in the new country that our families have given us, I think dropping the halves and I, I we just did an episode about this a couple of weeks ago too about the fractions of the percentages. Um, the fractions of the percentages are for white supremacy. <laughs> you know, like it's for external people so that they can feel more comfortable in how they see our faces. And you and I both have faces that are telling a story of they're not just fill in the blank, whichever thing they think, you know, there's something else. You and I both have a face that is telling that story. And to, and to be able to claim it as its own thing, you start to think about like Appalachian American white folks. What do people describe them as? German Irish, Scots Irish. They're not half and halves. They're just a whole new entity because sure. they all came over and went to the same area and mixed around and they became a thing, a new thing. And no one really bats an eye to how you might say like, I'm English Irish or I'm Irish German or something like that. But you say you're Chinese Italian and it's like, like what, you know? And if you have children or were to have children, they would also be Chinese Italian and whatever the other thing is. And I think the... As we get more empowered in our mixedness and, and start to talk about it more openly, dropping those fractions and be fully, I am fully a Black, Japanese, British person, British American person. I'm fully those things. And at no point do I section my day off to where I'm Japanese, right? You know, like I might code switch the other sure. day. Absolutely. And I'm sure you have moments of those kinds of things too, where you're just like, you're living in your Chinese goodness or your Italian goodness and you're just feeling a kind of way but it's not like you hit a quota for the day you know I'm half this so half my day I just sure. completed the the Chinese half of my day I will now be moving on to the Italian half of my day like that's not <laughs> that's not how we roll so as we start to view ourselves as more complete pictures of things of of a person I think that is healthier for us and I feel like the new generation because they're going to have something like your book and your animated show especially if they're a chinese italian kid trying to figure out what they want for their birthday you know lunch or something like that that could be a moment of just like this is exactly the question that i have and it gets answered and moving on the next time it's going to be so much easier for them to answer a question as they go on and i, I appreciate that you've done something like that even if it came out of nowhere and you weren't expecting <laughs> that you would end up doing it <laughs> No, it's, it's been a fun process for sure. There's, yeah. there's no question, but you're right. Like there's, I think that, that layer, um, you know, you talk about like the national aspect versus, you know, the ethnicity layer of it. You know, I think in a lot of ways, that's why I sort of classified as like, oh, I'm an Asian American, right? Like mm, you can sure. say that. Cause I think that's probably even more, more appropriate, um, around what we were just discussing, but I'd also say this too it's almost felt like there's been a need, like I've heard some athletes and that's kind of the pool that I swim in um, with my day job, it, just in sports, there's mixed race athletes mm -hmm. who have Asian descent and a few of them publicly over the last, you know, months slash years have said, no, I'm a hundred percent this and I'm a hundred percent that. Yes. And I think the, it almost is now taking validation from just another, uh, public figure, so to speak, mm -hmm. like it, it's almost mm -hmm. taking public figures to talk about it openly to then I think have like this very, very subtle Shifts narrative change. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's just kind of how 
it's almost like, hey, oh yeah, like that actually makes sense. Like I've been feeling this way. You've actually verbalized it. I'm going to roll with that. That makes right. sense. Do you feel, would you feel as comfortable describing yourself as an Italian American? Uh, yeah. 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 No, for sure. Um, yeah. And I think the, it's a really good question. I think part of the reason maybe that's not what the default is, is just from a physical appearance. Sure. But I think to your point, and you had said this before, like if I rolled up to Hong Kong, like they're not going to be like, yo, you're Chinese. Like they're just, it's just yeah. not the case. Like they're going to understand that there's, I think there's mannerisms. Certainly one, as soon as I open up my mouth and start speaking, I think there's that aspect of it. But I think it's the same thing if I go to Italy. Like I don't think anyone right. would say, hey, are, are you Italian? Um, you know, I do think back to that trip when I was in my twenties and I was with, you know, a couple childhood friends. We were, we were in Rome and Florence. And I, it always struck me as, surprising people were coming up to me in the street in italian sometimes or in english asking me for directions mm. and i always thought that that was weird because the friends my childhood friends that i was with like they were they were white and they were italian irish for example mm -hmm. right they, yet i was the one that was getting asked the questions which i always thought again i never in my mind i've never really ever been able to explain or understand mm -hmm. why that was that was always just surprising to me and just like a really subtle thing from 20 years ago and I yet call I that, always think about that trip I call that smell your own kind because the amount of times random old creole people have come up to me and said you creole and then just walked away and I'm and not having an answer for that and I'm like are we creole and finally getting to my granddad and asking like do we have a creole history like is there and they're like yeah I think there's a something that, you know, in the same way you can pass like your eye color, your hair color through genetics. I think there's also something that is sort of like a, a thing that is sort of subtly available to other people to understand. Sure. I know for me, like my body physically code switches when I'm in a Japanese space. And uh, so like if I go to the Japanese grocery store, like I kind of hunch over a little and and the way I like talk is different, like even though I'm speaking in English. I speak in like a more Japanese um, staccato kind of cadence than, sure. than I do in my English and stuff. Uh, and then when I'm in a black space, I'm more, you know, sitting up and my posture changes and things like that too. So I think like physically there's some things and none of this stuff is like someone taught me you're black. You need to do this. You're Japanese. You need to do this. It's literally just watching my grandmother, you know, watching my, my granddad, sure. my dad, stuff like that. And then over time, it just becomes a part of you. So you might have been doing something that one of your grandparents, like you might have just had something that, you know, and you're not even aware of physically something that you're giving off that didn't scream American first yeah. over like whatever the Italian part is. Um, I love when stuff like that happens, though, because that I would much rather be validated by like a a physical thing that I do that someone goes, you must be Japanese or you must be black because blah, 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 blah. Versus like prove to me that oh, you're yeah. mixed, you know, yeah. which I think does happen to us quite a bit. Um, so like, those are, that's the kind of external validation. I'll what, like, bring it. Tell, tell me what weird little thing I'm doing, you know, or some little thing that I don't register it as a thing until, sure. you know, um lately now that i'm especially now that i'm in my 40s i do the the old granddad hand behind the back while i'm walking in the store <laughs> thing and i don't know <laughs> 
I don't know when that started, but I've been busted doing it a couple of times, and I'm just like, yeah, that's all G. <laughs> that's my that's yeah. my great grandfather. Right just stretching is really what that is. <laughs> no, no. It happens. Uh, but before yeah. we get out of here, I do want to ask you, what do you love most about being a mixed person? Well, that's a great question. Um, I do. I, I love the fact that there's a connection to two different cultures. You know, I think even though there's been times when it's been somewhat difficult, I, I don't, I certainly wouldn't have picked a different path for myself. Like I'm glad I've had the experiences that I've, I've had. Um, and I think it also has allowed me to have a certain level of empathy for different cultures as well that mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, if I didn't have necessarily two backgrounds, I don't, I don't know if I would have had those same sort of feelings I'd like to think that I, I would have. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with upbringing, but I do think it adds a different layer to the empathy conversation and some of those feelings. So I, mm -hmm. I think teaching me that aspect of it is is one of the, truly one of the things that I love about it. Yeah, I agree. And and that does come up quite a bit. I, I think empathy, it's a different kind of empathy. There's the general, like, I don't want to hurt people empathy. And sure, then there's sure. the kind of empathy that's like, seeing what my grandmother went through to assimilate and how it's not always sure. easy. And yet she still worked so hard to do it. Um, you never know when you see someone from the outside, what is the background? What is the thing that they've had to struggle so hard for? And I think we just have slightly more of a radar for it as mixed folks, because we get to see people in our own family yeah. from those different backgrounds. I agree with that. I think that's, that's lovely. So we know that the book's not quite out at the time that we're recording. It's, it's going to be out like within minutes, basically. Yeah. But when that happens, can you tell everybody how to get access to it? No doubt. Um, so it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. The name of the book is Fried Rice and Marinara. Um, once again, it is free completely. If you just want to see the animated aspect of it, it's free on YouTube. You can just, you know, YouTube it. It's Fried Rice and Marinara. And I know I made reference to this a little bit earlier, but if there's a kiddo in your life, ages two to eight, that you think could really benefit from having a platform like books, which helps kids learn how to read with the, the stories getting animated with read-along text and narration. If you use my last name, it's free for a year. So um, once again, that's books. It's like books with a V, so like mm -hmm. video books, so to speak. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and it's an app. And, and you know, I, I know some parents really do. Uh, I got some family members and, and friends who have used it with their kids and they, and they love it. That's dope. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I will put all of that in the show notes for the audience so that you can get a chance if you're a parent to... Um have that there for your kids. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. This yeah. has been such a good conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I can't wait to see what fried rice and marinara does out in the world. And yeah, you know, come back anytime because this is fun. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversations that you're having uh, in this space. There's not there's not a lot of them. So um, you should be really proud of what you have accomplished in a couple hundred episodes. So <laughs> for people who don't know, like that is not easy to do. The no, consistency, the cadence, the uh, the booking your own guests, the editing around all of it, the technical aspects that no one thinks about. How do you monetize? Yeah. There's a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, so I have a real appreciation for for what you're doing for, for people like us and the community and having conversations like this. Thank you. I appreciate it. And to everybody out there, be your mixed ass selves. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship 
or paypal.me slash militantlymix for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.